And uh, so listen, let me pray and ask for God's uh, work in our hearts here today as we, we start into worship and everything. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you that um, that you love us. Thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us on the cross uh, for our sins, that we might have a, a, the way to, to have a relationship with you. And uh, Lord, we just thank you that that way is open to anyone who would um, admit their need for the Savior and, and then believe in him. And Father, we also just want to lift up those that we know who are sick, who are not well right now with all kinds of sicknesses. We pray for your healing power in their lives. We also lift up those who might be just feeling extremely lonely right now because of the isolation that's being experienced and pray that your presence would be made known to them. Uh, They would find uh, you to be a very present help in times of trouble. And Lord, we also uh, just lift up the leaders of our state and our local authorities and those uh, who are uh, our president and all those who are in charge. We ask and pray that you would lead and guide them. Uh, They would seek you for wisdom uh, in this time. And uh, Lord, we just we just ask all these things in Jesus' name, Amen. So let's go sing some worship songs here, and then we'll get into God's Word. Hi, good morning, Darby Creek. Thanks for joining us this morning. And just um, wherever you find yourself in your house, just um, hope that you would just stand up, be be comfortable, and just sing out, sing loud, and just sing praises to our God together as we're meeting virtually this week. All right, thank you.
light in the darkness, my God, and that is who you are. You are waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, and that is who you are. Even when I don't see it, you work. Even when I don't feel it, you work. You never stop. Stop working, never stop, never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you work. Even when I don't feel it, you work again. Never stop, never stop working. Never stop, never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you work. Even when I don't feel it, you work again. Never stop, never stop working. Never stop.
Pastor Greg. Thank you guys for leading us in worship. It's good to be reminded uh, that it's all about Jesus, isn't it? Uh, with everything that's going on, uh, with, you know, even, even with worship right now, we, we're not gathering together in corporate worship, but yet we can try to f- fix our mind and our hearts on him and remember what he's done for us and, uh, what a, what a wonderful, wonderful joy it brings to us when we remember that we're forgiven and set free from sin if we've put our faith in Christ. So a great song. I really appreciate that. Um, so today we're starting a new series on the book of Esther. And um, it's it's somewhat uh, a, a book that's less traveled for a lot of people. Uh, it's one of two books in the Bible named after a woman. And it's interesting that in this particular book of the Bible, that uh, God's name is not mentioned, and uh, but his hands are all over it, as you'll see. And so um, I'm just going to have us go right to this, this passage here as we start off in chapter 1. I'm going to be kind of stopping and starting as we go through this first chapter just to kind of mention some things as we read through the passage. Uh, and then we definitely have some points of application for us to see how does this apply for us today. So here we go, Uh, Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now on the days of Azeroth, Azeroth, okay, I can can say this, Azeroth, excuse me, Uh, the Azeroth who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. By the way, this is how you know this is live, that I make mistakes. (laughs) In those days when King Asherius, there we go, sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third day or third year of his reign, I want to stop there for a second because, you know, when you read the Bible, you have to understand where in time and even geographically where you are. And so I've got a picture here that I pulled out of um, the ESV study Bible a map, and it shows where Susa is. Now, if you see in bold letters there, um, about center screen of the map, uh, Babylonia. And then just a little above and to the right, you see Susa. And that's where we're talking about. That's where this book of the Bible is uh, taking place. And um, Susa is in the southern part of modern-day Iran, uh, just so you get a, a context for where this is. And in this map on the screen here, this all, everything in green is under Persian rule. And so Ashuarius, King Ashuarius, is, is controlling this region, and it's quite vast, and he's very powerful, uh, very, very powerful. And so that gives us a sense for the, the, the where this is happening. And, and then just to uh, take a look here at some of the historical context here, this is happening uh, somewhere between 486 and 464 B.C., And here's an excerpt, again, from the ESV Study Bible about this historical context. I'll just read it. It says, in terms of biblical history, Esther brings or belongs to the period after the Babylonian exile, when Persia had replaced Babylon as the ruling power. Now, hold on for a second. Babylonian exile. So what's that about? Well, in the Old Testament, God's people many times departed from him and, and, uh, um, worshiped idols and, and instead of the one true living God, and they, they continued to fail to trust him time and time again. And, and as, a, as a form of discipline, God says, I, I love you too much to kind of let you go on this path. He allowed them to be um, conquered by the Babylonians, and then they were, they were displaced or dispersed uh, to other cities taken out of their homeland, and, and that's, that's this period called Babylonian exile. But now, at this time, when Esther, is being writ- when Esther was written, it says now the ba- Babylonians were no longer the controlling power in this region, but, um, but Persia was. So it says, the story is set in Susa, the Persian capital, during the reign of King Ashuarius, better known by his Greek name Xerxes. Some Jews had returned to Jerusalem where they, had enjo- where they enjoyed a reasonable amount of control over their own affairs 
as described in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So if you've read those books of the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah, that's you see where that's where they start to rebuild Jerusalem, and some people are being allowed to go back to Jerusalem and, uh, and, and to start to rebuild there. Uh, but it says others, like Esther and Mordecai, were still in exile. As a minority group, the Jews were viewed with suspicion and sometimes faced threats to their existence from people in a position to harm them. And this is what we're going to see in this book of, book of the Bible. The Jewish people as a race are going to be threatened. Uh, someone wants to wipe them out, and you'll see that. And so this is the historical setting. The Jews are a minority. They're in exile still. And, um, and so this is where we, we find ourselves. And so let's go on here, and we'll continue reading in chapter 1. So, so it says, In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, and when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So here we have King Ashuarius kind of showing his power uh, and, and uh, his, all his wealth and everything in this kingdom. And uh, he has this 180-day party banquet, if you will, day after day, followed by a seven-day uh, feast as well. And so uh, we continue here. It says in verse 6, There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of vine and linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of morphery, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. I mean, you get to see all the wealth here and the power. Some even believe that actually King Ashwarius may have been uh, helping to raise support uh, for his efforts to conquer Greece next. Um, and so they thought this might have been kind of some of these celebrations to garnish support. Verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. <clears throat> there is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Stop there for a second. What is verse 8 about? Uh, what we may not understand, since we didn't live back then, was there was a protocol that um, if there was drinking going to be done, you only drank when the king was drinking. And so that was the way it went. And so, but the king gave an order that, hey, you can drink as much as you want, when you want. You don't have to wait for me to drink. Um, and you can see how that would go. Uh, verse 9, Queen Vashti also <clears throat> gave a feast for women in the palace that belonged to King Ashuarius. And so you can see he had a harem. Verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ashwarius, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command and delivered by the, the king's man delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Now, uh, what's going on here? Uh, the author doesn't really explain why Esther refused. Um, I think we can definitely read between the lines here to come up with some uh, a viable option as to why she would have refused. I mean, it's very likely that she was, she was, you know, she was, the king wanted to parade her around like some object of desire. Uh, and, and so it makes sense to me that she would say, I'm not going to have any of that um, and be objectified like that. Um, and so there are other options that scholars have thrown out, but I think that to me just makes the most sense. Um, but regardless of the reason, 
that she refused. Um, the fact that she refused the king is something that you never do. If the king summons you, you come. You don't say no. It doesn't matter who you are. So <clears throat> that's why the king was enraged. So let's go on here. Verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times. And then there's a parenthesis. For this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mures, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. So these were guys who were his advisors. Uh, they were his right-hand men, so to speak. And then it says in verse 15, this is a quote. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ashwarius delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the province of King Ashwarius. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ashwarius commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. So you can see these guys are control freaks um, and, and abusers of women uh, and power. And so they're like, hey, you know, if Queen Vashti is doing this to the king, our wives are going to, what do you think our wives are going to do? Um, and so they were threatened by this or felt threatened by this. Verse 18, this very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Verse 19, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ashwarius and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So it's important you realize this fact here that once a law is written according to the law of Persians and the Medes, it cannot be reversed. It cannot be repealed. It is a done deal and nothing can undo it. So the proposal here is that Queen Vashti is going to be set off to the side and uh, never to see the king again, and he's going to look for somebody else. So verse 20, so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is God's word. You know, it's, you read that, that opening chapter and, you know, you might be tempted to think, well, what does this have to do with us? I mean, it's a nice story and yeah, okay. It happened historically, but um, you know, what does this have to do with us? And, and uh, I hope today that we'll get um, a little bit bi- a big picture view what's going on in this book, and then as we go in subsequent weeks, we'll we'll be able to see further application as we go along. Uh, but make no mistake, uh, there's not a word written in the Bible that's not applicable that somehow does not have um, an uh, have an effect. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16, where it says, you know, all scripture, all scripture is inspired by God, is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that verse right there in 2 Timothy tells us that there's not anything that's written that's not, um, that's not profitable, that's not helpful. And so the question for us would be, how is this profitable? How does this help us? What does this show us? And so uh, these are great questions. And so the first thing I want to bring up is, um, <clears throat> is this that God is always at work? Um, you know, we don't, we, we never hear the, the word God mentioned. His name is not mentioned in the entire book, even though you may not have read the whole book yet. Um, and so <clears throat> we don't even see any acts of worship 
nothing like that. And so you might say, where is God? Uh, well, his hand is his hand is all over this. He is at work, uh, in a sense, through the workings of the people. And um, so in the book of Esther, we see the invisible hand of God. Um, when I, I started thinking about this, the invisible hand of God, I started thinking back to when I was a kid. And when I was a kid, I remember playing around with, um, I'll put in quotes here, invisible ink. And um, some of you may have done this before, where you can take lemon juice and you can put it on paper. Uh, you take a toothpick, dip it in lemon juice, and then you can start writing on the paper as if the toothpick was a stylus. I'm sure you could use a paintbrush too. And uh, and then it dries and then it's like, you know, it appears as if there is nothing written there. But then when you go to a heat source, like in this sketch that's shown here, it's a light bulb and you could hold it over like a, probably a, probably have to be a hundred watt incandescent bulb or something hot enough that you could hold it over there. And then in usually it would come, uh, I think in brown, it would come up in like a brown coloring. You could see all the writing. It would be revealed. What was invisible was now made visible. It was there all along. And so I was just thinking that in terms of, of, the, of God here in this book of the Bible, that he's at work. Um, he's not in the foreground. He's in the background working through the people and the circumstances that he is, he is, he is sovereign over. And um, I just want to get us to be thinking about that in our own lives. God's always working. Uh, we, may, we may feel even that he's distant and not involved, but he is. He is. He's, he's not letting us go. Um, I, I love that song that um, Caleb and Shelby sang for us, the the Waymaker. It, it reminds us uh, there later in the in the song that even though we can't see it, He's working. Even though we can't feel it, He's working. And you know, our feelings come and go. Um, our should never be our our feelings should never be our true north. They should never be our guide. Um, our feelings should follow our faith in what truth is. And so um, it's just a good reminder. This book of the Bible reminds us God is always at work. And so I encourage you that if you're struggling with uh, believing that, ask the Lord to help you to have the faith to trust that he's working in whatever circumstances you're in, uh, that he is always at work. He's doing stuff right now. We, we I mean, we don't know why. Why the COVID-19 virus? Why this now? Um, we don't have answers for that. Um, we don't. We just have to trust and have faith in God that he is working and that he always is. So uh, it's a good, good something for us to remember here. A verse here in Isaiah 55 reminds us that, you know, um, God's working and he works in ways that we might not. And so on. And so it says, Isaiah 55, verses 8 to 11, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. It goes on in verses 10 and 11. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be to that goes out from my mouth, and it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I have sent it. I love that part of, the, that part of this passage too, because it just reminds us that God's word will be accomplished. Um, it, it goes out. This is encouragement, I think, for the believer too, when we we share Christ, we share the love of Christ with people, and we don't know how it's being received or what, what it will do. But um, God, as the word of God, the truth of God goes out, it will be accomplished what he wants. Um, and whatever God has written will be accomplished in its time. And so I think it's, it is important for us to recognize that God is always at work, but he's not always working according to our timetable. It's interesting that you know, we need to realize that um, we're such an instant society. We want things to be done now. 
Um, you know, if we want situations to be fixed, you know, within days, hours, months, years, but you know, God, sometimes God's timetable is decades. Sometimes God's timetable is not in our lifetime. And that's difficult for us to swallow sometimes. But reading things like um, the Bible, reading the Bible text, and I, I, I get, you just realize things have happened over centuries, God's plan coming to, to bear. And so uh, as we realize God is always at work, we should, we should realize that. And that reminds us, you know, if God is always at work, then there's, in a sense, there's no such thing as the mundane. He's always working, no matter how uh, insignificant things might seem in my situation or at the time, uh, whatever I'm doing. Now, another thing to think about as we go through this is just that we need to remember that there is a bigger picture here going on. And I have a picture here of a tapestry. And of course, on the left-hand side is the reverse side where you have all the yarn and the threads. And it looks kind of, I mean, you can see a little bit of what the pattern is, but, but it's, all, it's a mess. It's just a mess. But on the right-hand side, you can see the front of the tapestry and see how beautiful it is and and, and, and you see the design and the purpose there. And um, in this situation in Esther, like in ours, God is working in a larger context. Um, you know, we only see sometimes that backside of the tapestry. What's happening right now? It looks like a mess. Um, how, how could God be working in this? How could he um, uh, be active in my life when all this is going on? And um, But we need to, again... We need to ask God to help us see that there is a larger story that our story fits in, as well as there's a larger picture of things going on in our lives that we just don't have any idea what's happening. I, I remember, and I've shared this many times at our church, but but just, you know, when I <clears throat> took my first electrical engineering course and flunked it, and uh, that set me on a trajectory um, in teaching instead of engineering. And, you know, I could have taken the course again. I, I probably would have passed it, but God was working a number of circumstances um, that I didn't understand. And frankly, I didn't like because, um, well, initially my thought was engineers make a lot more money than teachers do. And, uh, you know, those were things, I mean, all these things, I'm like, God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this to happen? And, um, and it looked messy, like on the left-hand side of that tapestry. But yet now, you know, it's usually only after the fact that many times that we're able to see the beauty in what God was doing. And, you know, I can say now, hey, I see God's using the, 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 uh, the teaching that I get to do, whether it's here at the church or whether it's um, at the local community college or whatever. But, but I, I see how he has worked in that. Um, and we need to have that perspective that there are bigger things bigger things going on uh, than that. Um, you know, when you think of the big picture, also think of that, you know, the chain of events going on here in the book of Esther. Now, I know we haven't read the whole book yet, but again, this, this message is trying to give us kind of an overview of, of, of the big picture of what's going on. The chain of events here. Um, uh, here it says, if there was no feast, there would be no drunk king. If there was no drunk king, there would be no drunk call to his wife. Uh, and then there would be no refusal of the king and no angry king. And if no angry king, no foolish counsel would have been given. No foolish counsel given, then no Vashti deposal, meaning Vashti would have not have put off, been put off to the side and then provided a way for Esther to come onto the scene. Uh, and that's what we'll see in chapter two, Esther kind of enters the stage. And so, but if Esther had not been here, no, there would be no Jews because this would have been an, an edict. There will be, you'll see in, as we go through the book, um, the, 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 they look to exterminate the Jews. Okay. And guess what? No Jews, no Jesus, right? Jesus was a Jew. No Jesus, no hope. And do you see? You see the big picture? How through this 
terrible thing that's kind of going on with King Ashwarius, and he's a ter- terrible guy. That's an understatement. Um, and, and through this uh, series of events, uh, we see that God is working in the bigger picture. And we have to remember that. It's, it helps us. It helps us maintain our ground and to remain steadfast in very difficult times. The other thing that we should remember and and that we'll see in this book of the Bible is that God is sovereign and in control. God is sovereign and in control. I want to read to you, before we get on to this verse, um, I want to read to you something that I read. And I mentioned earlier this um, devotional that Moody put out in the month of February, the Today in the Word devotional dedicated to Esther. And and there was uh, something written there that I just wanted to read for you guys about sovereign God's sovereignty, because uh, I just want to try to give a very, very brief definition of what that is. Um, what does it mean for God to be sovereign? And this is a quote here from this devotional. It says, sovereignty is the power and authority by which God bends all things towards his good purpose. This does not mean that every event in our lives itself is good. Nor does it mean that we have no individual will or moral accountability. Sovereignty does mean that God orchestrates our circumstances and works through our actions in order to propel his own redemptive purposes. That's about as a succinct uh, description of God's sovereignty I could find. And just you see that, yeah, we still have our free will, we still, you know, we're still held accountable for our actions, yet God uses uh, all of those things together to accomplish his good purposes, even working through the bad stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, a good example of this, uh, a wonderful example of this is the Lord Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. Uh, this same devotional goes on to read in, it mentions Acts chapter 2, verse 23, when Peter is preaching. Okay, this is Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2. Listen to what Peter says. He says, this man, meaning Jesus, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And then he goes on to say, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. That's Acts 2.23. Now, don't you see that there all in one verse? The will of man, these people, these people hung Jesus on the cross, right? But yet it was according to God's will and his foreknowledge. And so this is what it means for God to be sovereign and in control. And um, I was just messaging somebody on Facebook here recently, and um, you know they're out of work now. And uh, they're because of, you know, the the, um, the quarantine and everything and and companies cutting back, understandably, or are shutting down. And, and and so but it was interesting, you know, they just said, but God is sovereign and, and, and I'm trusting him. So, I mean, that's that's pretty amazing perspective. And it, it's a biblical perspective. I mean, it's, I'm sure they would say it's not easy. I'm sure they would say, you know, we're, we're on hard times. But they say, hey, I believe that God is sovereign. He is in control and uh, nothing is slipping through his hands here. Now, along those lines, think about King Ashwarius with all this power. And as you can see, the abuse of power. Um, Proverbs 21.1 says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he will. I tell you what. Uh, unless you happen to be the boss, you're going to want this verse in your pocket um, because you're working for somebody and um, or, or you're in some kind of a uh, organization where someone else's control, someone else is, is calling the shots. We have to realize that God is even the one who has put them there and that he can turn. It says here, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, um, I want you to see this picture here of this guy working in the field. What's he doing? He's channeling the water um, to get it to where it needs to go. And um, because I think we can gloss over that verse 
and really not get all that's there. I want you to take a look here at this um, this information I pulled from Ligonier.org. It says, um, the metaphor of the king's heart as being like God-directed stream borrows from a common ancient Near Eastern life. Due to the arid conditions of the region, farmers in the ancient world, and even today, had to redirect the natural flow of rivers and streams to supply their gardens with life-giving water. This was no easy task for human beings, but the creator who set rivers and streams on their courses can with ease direct where he wants it to go. Now, do you see that part of the verse there where it talks about the king's uh, can can direct the heart of the king that God can direct the heart of the king like streams of water. It's simple for God. It's difficult for us. That guy in the field, that's a lot of work. But this is simple for God to turn the heart of a king, it says. And so that um, there at the end there, it says it is similarly easy task for him to direct the hearts of kings to accomplish his purposes. And we just need to remember that. Now, if you're in a situation where Someone is in a position of control or power over you, just just from a standpoint of an authority, not even necessarily abusive power or anything like that, but just a, a standpoint of an authority, someone who's an authority, who's making decisions that affect you, um, whether it's at work or whatever, <clears throat> realize that God can change their hearts. He can work through what they're doing, even the even the nasty stuff. He can work through that. Um, and so that's something we need to remember. One last thing here, <clears throat> it goes on to say, it says, if the only wise God is truly in control of absolutely everything that ever happens in the universe, we know that even, I'll put this in quotes myself, apparently random events have purpose and that he can work all things together for good for those who love him. And it's, it's mentioning there, referencing Romans 8, 28. And that's just, again, you may know about the sovereignty of God. You may have already proclaimed before you believe it. But, you know, in times like these, we need to remember uh, and stand fast on that. Well, that kind of gives us a good um, overview of, of, you know, what we're going to be facing here in the book of Esther. And I hope that that today... Uh, that that going through some of these truths of the sovereignty of God, keeping the big picture in mind, realizing that God is always at work, He's he, he just may be working in the background and we don't even notice it. That those things will bring you encouragement and increase your faith to trust God and know that He's not abandoned you and whatever is going on in your life. So I like to just close in prayer here and ask God to help us. Uh, put this into our faith and into action this week here. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, every word in the Bible is true and is profitable. Uh, and we want to, as we embark upon this uh, study and uh, this uh, message series on the book of Esther, Lord, help us to see your hand. Help us to see you working. Help us to learn from even the characters in the study. Um, to see how you want us to be or how you don't want us to be. But let us never lose sight of the fact that in this book, you are preserving for yourself a people. And you are preserving uh, the people through whom Jesus would come and save us from our sins. And Lord, we thank you for this, uh, the preservation of this book even over the years. And so Lord, help us to trust you Help us to know you're in control. Grow our faith, Lord. Um, stretch us, even though that might be difficult, that in the result, end result, we would be stronger in our faith and giving glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.